Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Am I alive and kicking on the mics? Can you hear me at the back? Jolly good. Just bear with me while I get my technicals all up and running. I, um, I live in a little market town called I. Does anyone know I? Yeah, up near Dis. And uh, I was driving down this morning, and uh, I was thinking, I'm coming to a worship service at Burlington Baptist Church, and uh, uh, it'd be great to play some worship music to get myself into a connection with, with God in that way, and uh, just to get myself in the frame of mind to, to be with you and to worship with you. But um, somehow, what was playing, coming out of my... Uh, machine in the car was the soundtrack to the film Gladiator. So I'm not quite sure what that says about what my expectations are this morning. (laughs) But shall we go for it? Um, Thank you very much for having me join you uh, this morning and for Burlington's support over many uh, years for Talitha Kum. My name is John Said, is uh, Ken Donaldson. I've been project director at TK since the beginning of 2014. And uh, if you're unaware, then uh, we have two outworkings to our project. Uh, We run Women Together support groups uh, in Ipswich for women with any addiction. You may not know, but actually uh, the first women's support group actually happened here at Burlington um, back in 2013. Revised and renamed, it's grown to become Women Together with three Women Together support groups running weekly in Ipswich. And that's one of the two parts to TK's operations. We're also now about to commence operations with the opening of a rehabilitation center for women offering rehab uh, for women with drug and alcohol addictions. And so Burlington has been and continues to be uh, a good and supportive friend to TK, for which we are incredibly grateful. But I'm going to say uh, a a bit more about TK later, giving you an update of where we find ourselves today, and I'll show you some photos of the rehab center uh, in all its glory, because I know that many of you will have been supporting us and will want to see what it's actually looking like now, 12 years after the original vision for our work. Before that, I want to take you on a journey into the passage uh, which Simon has just uh, read for us. And it's a passage which, of course, is dear to TK. Uh, It's where we get our name from. Uh, And the more that I've delved into this passage, the greater I've found its richness. So it was Mark 5, uh, 21 to, in fact, we went on to 43. And I want you and me to look at it. We've, We've got me, Jesus, and Talitha Kum as our heading today. I want you and me to just dive into this passage together. I want you to walk with me into this scene. These are, as I said, significant verses for TK. The rising up of Jairus' daughter with the words from Jesus, 
Talitha kum, little girl, get up. The first time in scripture that we read of Jesus raising someone from the dead. But for the moment, this is about you, me, and there are some significant points here in this passage which I wanted to share with you and to explore with you today. So journey back with me, if you will. Let's dive back into time, to this time when Jesus walked in human form in a dusty land called the Middle East. Try to take yourself in your imagination into this landscape, hot, dusty, rocky, beige colors everywhere, sandstone walls, sandy soil. And Jesus was here, the the talk of the town, surrounded by many people, kicking up dust, loudly talking away at each other. There had not been a prophet around in these days for about 400 years. People were not used to miracles. Yet here was Jesus, the talk of the town and of the countryside, surrounded by all sorts, performing miraculous acts. And many Jewish leaders, we know, did not follow Jesus. They were angered by him. And how could their Messiah, the Messiah they'd waited 400 years for, uh, claim to come in the form that Jesus did, a lowly carpenter rather than the majestic, godly leader with mighty warriors to support them that they had in their minds. Something we might find in the film Gladiator. But here is this renegade, quietly yet authoritatively with a servant's attitude, ministering to the broken world in truth and light and claiming to be the Son of God. This was not someone that the church leaders of their day saw as their man for the moment. Take yourself into this scene then, where we find Jairus, the leader of the local synagogue. And Jairus, the man, had a huge problem. He needed help fast. His daughter was losing her fight to stay alive. Imagine yourself as Jairus. Put yourself in his shoes. When I read this story, there's a a slight sense of panic. What on earth was Jairus going through? As a father myself, I have two daughters, uh, which at least one school teacher in here will remember. And many times, you know, I've worried over them. I've panicked over them even. Faced that phone call from school uh, or their mum, meaning I've had to drop what I'm doing and respond. But never, never, thank God, have I been faced with the kind of scenario that Jairus did here. And yet some of us do. And what was the state of his mind as he approached Jesus? Here's this throng of people, dust and noise everywhere. People shouting to each other. Some proclaiming him king. Others shouting out what fools they are. And Jairus here has a choice. Think about his situation. He, he wasn't just intrigued by Jesus and inviting him round for a cup of tea or coffee to the synagogue. This was a life and death moment for his little girl, his 12-year-old girl. There was no NHS, there was no hospital, there was no healthcare, no ambulances. He had nothing else to fall back on, nothing else. Only, he thought, Jesus. And people around must have seen Jairus fall to his knees. We read that in the passage, don't we? This man who was held in high esteem in his community. What were the implications for his leadership of the synagogue? maybe even for his livelihood. He'd have been a relatively wealthy man as a synagogue leader, 
Most of his colleagues were dead set against Jesus and his words. Many wanted Jesus dealt with, dead even. And so here we are with Jairus, a religious leader, actually beyond caring about any of that, desperate, broken by the pain of his daughter's circumstances, unashamed to cry out for help, his own importance now of no importance at all. He was about to become exposed and vulnerable, putting everything he'd ever held to be his security totally on the line, publicly reaching out to the King of Kings. And I just wonder how far do we go out in reaching to Jesus? What does it take to break us from the constraints of worldliness or religious restraints to recognize Jesus? What are we prepared to lose in order to bow the knee at his feet? Where is our security? Jairus was exposed and he was vulnerable. His whole life's purpose and status suddenly on the line because he begged Jesus to help him. And what happened? Verse 23 happened. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Verse 24. Jesus went with him. There is hope. Can you feel that within? Can you, can you put yourself in his shoes? He's taken the risk. He's put it all on the line. And Jesus has said, I'll come with you. My heart, actually, my heart's beating a little bit harder uh, in the midst of all of that. Just thinking about that. All the demands on Jesus, the noise, the heat. Jesus heard him and is coming to his dying daughter. Come on now. Let's go. Can you imagine, Jairus? Come on, let's go. Can we get a move on? Let's run, maybe. She's dying. Come on. And then. (laughs) Bam. A woman with bleeding stops Jesus in his tracks. As Jairus, we turn round. And what on earth do you think Jairus is thinking at this point? What on earth is he thinking? Is he crying in despair? Is he shouting, screaming? The Bible doesn't tell us. Is he giving up hope? Is he waiting patiently? What would you have done? What would you have done? I'm, uh, I'm quite a gentle sort, as those here who know me will testify to. Not very assertive sometimes. Maybe a, a bit prone to keeping the peace. I've been through counseling. I know all that. <laughs> but you know, I think I'd really struggle not to run up to Jesus, to tug at his cloak and plead with him to get a move on. My daughter is dying! Please! Why are you looking for someone who's just touched the hem of your garment? Please, you've got your priorities wrong. Come on. I'm actually sweating as I stand here saying this. And to add insult to injury, this woman would very likely have been an outcast in this society. And she's getting the attention from Jesus at this moment in time rather than the synagogue leader. It's almost as though Jesus was deliberately illustrating that he has come for all people of any social standing. And so often too, we think, don't we, that we know what God's priorities should be. I'm sure Jairus was thinking that. Jesus pauses and seeks out the woman with the bleed. And so an extraordinary little side drama plays out. Jairus is over here on one side. What is going on for him? We read that the woman was trembling with fear. Jesus knows what has happened. This is scary for her. She knew straight away that she'd been healed after 12 years of bleeding simply from touching this man's cloak. No wonder she's scared. 
But why is Jesus seeking her? Why? Has she done something hideously wrong? What more does, she, does he want with her? Is he angry? Is he going to tell her off? Jesus pursues her not simply because he wants her to know that her faith in him has healed her. He wants to give her so much more than just her physical healing. Such is the extravagant love of God. He wants her to know that with physical healing comes spiritual peace, his divine peace, and the knowledge that he is happy that she is healed. And back to the main drama. What is going on for Jairus in the meantime? What is he seeing in this exchange? It may well be that Jairus is thinking this is pretty rubbish to say the least. Come on. Come on, my daughter is dying. Jesus, I've laid my life, my family's well-being, my career on the, life for, on the line for you. Leave this unworthy woman alone. Come on, come on. And then the worst possible news filters through. Jairus' little 12-year-old girl has in fact died. Some men came from his house and broke that most devastating of news. She's dead. Jairus, she's dead. Are you there? Can you put yourself in his shoes? Jesus' immediate words to Jairus, the synagogue leader, are not, be at peace. She's in a better place. They're not, I'm sorry, but that other woman had needs too. They were this, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. Now, what, what on earth would you have done? You're Jairus. Your daughter has just died because this guy into whose hands you'd placed your whole life has let you down. Would you slump to the ground in despair? Imagine yourself there. Would you punch his lights out or will you believe him? I just find this the most remarkable of moments. What passes between Jesus and Jairus as they look at each other? And Jairus has stood there listening to Jesus say, don't be afraid. Just believe. It is said that the phrase, don't be afraid, is mentioned 365 times in the Bible, once for every day. Jairus faces a crisis of faith. This is his one day in 365. Jesus is saying, don't be afraid, just believe. Well, of course, here's the thing. In that moment, Jairus chooses to continue with Jesus. I guess he's not got any choice. He's got nothing else left. And when we face major decisions in life, what do we do? Turn to Jesus? Do we look him in the eye and remind ourselves that he says, don't be afraid, just believe? Is Jesus so a part of our everyday lives that actually every decision we make has his character all over it? When we face a crisis, do we trust Jesus even when it seems he's abandoned us? Even when faced with death? God's spoken word created the world and all the life that is in it. At this point in history, people were seeing that Jesus had power over sickness. They'd seen those miracles already. They knew he had power over, the na- over nature and evil spirits. They'd seen those miracles already. Now a handful of people knew that Jesus had power over death as they saw Jairus' daughter come alive again. Talitha Kum were the words he spoke to the 12-year-old. Little girl, get up. I want to simply ask you two things this morning from this reading. We have two beautiful and extraordinary examples of faith here. The faith of the sick woman with the issue of blood and Jairus' faith. Both the man and the woman were helpless, hopeless, and they somehow deep within knew that Jesus was their only answer. 
Jesus gave the woman with the issue of blood healing and peace because she reached out to him. A woman who had reached out to him secretively, hoping not to be noticed, but she reached out nonetheless. To Jairus and his daughter, he gave life where there was death because Jairus reached out to him and kept reaching out to him, aware that his reaching out so publicly would end his religious career. A private reaching out and a public reaching out. It doesn't matter how we reach out, just reach out. In God's kingdom, we see an end of suffering, hearts mended, a new life instead of death. In both cases, Jesus calmed their fear. He gave her peace and told him, don't be afraid. So my first question to you this morning, actually I think we've already had a question. Another question is simply, what do you fear? What is it that stops you from giving yourself wholly to Jesus and trusting him without fear? We sang about that already this morning. To be able to look him in the eye and say, yes, I trust you. Do you fear openly like Jairus or privately like the woman? What is it that maybe prevents you from accepting those words of Jesus? Don't be afraid, just believe. What is it that prevents you from seeking the ultimate peace and grace that we can find in our lives? Maybe you need to do something about that fear. And secondly, what does God's timing do for your faith? You see, Jesus had the very best for both Jairus and the woman. Both could have wholeness and peace. In both cases, they could have chosen to run away from one, the other, or both. If we were in charge of this story, we'd have done it very differently, I suspect. We'd probably have not put Jairus through the pain and the hurt, the emotional roller coaster that he faced of being told his little girl was dead. But God so transcends our limitations. How much do we limit him? God's timing is not necessarily ours. And maybe that's a real challenge for you. Jesus has purpose on earth and purpose in this particular encounter. What will you do with that? Will you doubt or will you believe? Will you fear or will you live in peace? Will you accept that God has the best purpose in mind and the best timing in mind and trust that? I suspect Jairus never doubted again. So two things from this reading. Firstly, Jesus offers us the message that we do not need to fear. We can trust him completely. And secondly, his timing for all of us is perfect if we walk with him in trust and in faith. And we've sung about that as well. So the title of today is Me, Jesus, and Talitha Kum. Me and Jesus we've looked at. We've got into that story. But what about Talitha Kum or TK? There's a seamless running there, isn't there? There's no division at all from one part of this to another. But I want to tell you a little bit now about TK. And many of you have been involved supporting TK over the last 12 years. I was fascinated as I was listening to Gladiator coming in this morning that 12 features such a lot today. The woman with the issue of blood had been in that state for 12 years. Jairus' daughter was 12. TK has been going for 12 years. I don't put too much stall on that kind of thing. But I was also aware, did you know the average age of, of women going into prostitution around the world is 12? Shocking, but it is actually true. 12 features quite a lot. So you've been supporting us for the last 12 years. And over that time, as I've explained at the beginning, we've established women together groups with women coming to an environment which understands and in which women can safely share with other women the challenges they face in their lives. 
Many addictions are shared, including drugs, alcohol, gambling, eating, pornography. And there is acceptance, no judgment, just the opportunity to encourage one another out of the difficulties faced. Alcoholism features in almost every woman's life in the 80 or so who have come to our groups in the last three years. And our team supports women outside the three weekly meetings, helping with appointments and crises in their lives. Further details are on our website and information here in church. But that's the one outworking. The second outworking of what we do is perhaps the higher profile one. And the original vision for TK was to provide both support groups for women, as I've talked about, but also to create a residential rehabilitation center for women with drug and alcohol addictions. And there are only seven in the whole of the UK dedicated only to women. Is it needed? There was a need 12 years ago. Is it still needed? Well, a few stats to send you off to sleep. The UK was described recently as the addiction capital of Europe. Drug and alcohol misuse costs the UK economy £36 billion annually. £36 billion. It's the knock-on effects of policing, of lost days at work, etc. Let alone the impact on the person. One and a half million children live with drug or alcohol-dependent parents in the UK. One and a half million The number more locally, the number of admissions to Ipswich Hospital that are caused by alcohol misuse are higher than the national average. And the number of serious sexual crimes in Ipswich caused by alcohol misuse are also higher than the national average. And according to Alcohol Concern, deaths from liver disease have reached record levels, rising by 20% in the last decade. And here's one for you older folks. The number of people between the ages of 60 and 74, you just have to get your heads around this one. It's a little complex, for me anyway. The number of people between the ages of 60 and 74 admitted to hospitals in England with mental and behavioral disorders associated with alcohol misuse, got that? Has risen by over 150% in the past 10 years while the figure for 15 to 59-year-olds has increased by 94%. We are literally pickling ourselves societally with alcohol. So yes, we're needed. And at TK, we've had seven inquiries from women wanting to come to our center uh, just over the last two months, and that's before we're actually ready to take them and uh, before we've put ourselves out there as a facility. But I've I've got, a, I've got ahead of myself. Let me take you back to look at the inside of one of our buildings two years ago. We have two buildings now on a site in Whitnesham, on a farm. Um, the two buildings, one is capable of housing up to seven women in ensuite rooms. Two years ago, that was, that was the building. The second building we have is a resource building in which the rooms are used to support and help women to move on into more hopeful futures. And I just want to run through some of the photos of the site just to give you an idea of the progress we've made uh, and the result of so much volunteer effort and sacrificial giving. So there's no script to this. I'll just talk as it appears. 
Um, this was actually, I think, about September last year. And that's our second block uh, on the site. It's not very clear in this light, but that was the internals of that second block, which were being clad with uh, insulation. And that was around about October time. Um, the site was very muddy at that time. We can't do anything with the lights, can we, to help, uh, help see that a little more clearly? There's a challenge to the boys. You can see clearly there. That's fantastic. Okay. So... A very, a very muddy kind of site this time last year, but, um, well, this is in October. And you can see our second block there has got a roof to it. And we sit in two acres of land, which gives us a great opportunity of creative work with the women who will be staying with us. And those are the two blocks. The one to the left is the accommodation block. The one on the right, the resource center. And we got to November last year. And uh, we felt that we really needed to have, uh, have this done and ready by the end of the month. And that is exactly where we got to. I have to tell you, it was clear to us a couple of years ago that God was asking us to step outside our comfort zone uh, in the summer of 2015. And we decided that we were to have the center unveiled to the public by the 10th anniversary of the finding of Gemma Adams the first woman to be found uh, on the 2nd of December 2006 during that horrible time when Steve Wright took their lives. So we said, despite the funding not being there, that we would have the building unveiled by the 2nd of December 2016. Well, we actually unveiled it two days before that, with funding, funnily enough, coming in as required, just in time. So you see here in these photos the vision coming to reality, uh, at least as far as the buildings are concerned. And for me, the message was clear. All the way through the kind of three years that I've been with TK, the message has been clear. Don't be afraid, just believe. And so we had our unveiling uh, at the end of November, ensuite accommodation for the women, as you can see uh, there. But for me, that message, don't be afraid, just believe, was prevalent throughout that time. And then we paused. We took a deep breath. From the autumn of last year, we were seeking a rehab center manager. And we struggled, and we struggled, and we struggled to find the right person. When we began the Women Together groups, the same thing happened back in 2014. We had to wait six months until the right leader came along. And so it was with the rehab center manager. We waited like Jairus for God's timing to be fulfilled. And Jenny Blades came along, propelled by God into the TK family. Jenny, just like the other Jenny who runs our Women Together groups, is undoubtedly called by God into this work. She doesn't have all the skills and experience that we were humanly looking for, but... The call is clear, the affirmation is clear, and the four weeks of work she has done has made it clear that she is the right person. We have now at the Hope Center in Wittnesham drawn a line in the sand and will be accepting women just as soon as CQC registration has come through, and that could be as soon as the beginning of next month. And this is just such an auspicious time for TK. 
an auspicious time for you too, our supporters and our helpers. Thank you. What will women who have been through detox find when they come to the center? Well, I hope, I know that they will find there is a golden thread of Christ running all the way through what we do. That's how we describe it within TK. They will find care. They'll find compassion. They'll find love. A 12-week program of education and relapse prevention. Group therapy, one-to-one therapy, a critical element of the care they need. They'll find horticultural training, life skills training from IT work to CV production to cooking and so on. Community living, activities that promote healthy living. And they will, they will find certainty about where they will go back to once they leave us. Housing, mentoring, community, support. And although we are a Christian center, we will welcome women of any faith or none. So for TK, this has been a journey of perseverance, of dedication, of commitment, of community support. It's taken thousands and thousands of volunteer hours to get to this point. But for me, all the way through has been the roller coaster moments, just like Jairus had. One of which actually was just before I joined in 2014, when it frankly felt and was reflected in the media that this project was just not going to happen. Many men and women of God have seen it through. Don't be afraid, just believe. That is what we've held on to. And we've praised God as he's answered prayer time after time. We're nearly there. This all began back in 2005 with a vision. The murders in 2006 affirmed the need for a center because all five women had class A drug habits. They were working the streets in order to fund those. Why are we doing this? The center will see mainly women who have made wrong choices in life. Or maybe have faced only one choice. And they will come from all walks of life. Professionals, accountants, shop assistants, civil servants, unemployed, and women working the streets. But let me just end by telling you about Emma. I may have mentioned Emma before. Have have any of you heard me talk about Emma before? Do any of you know Emma? Emma... (coughs) Emma told her story in a national newspaper back in 2013. So where are we? We're seven years on from all the terrible events here in Ipswich. She told her story, and in fact, it was in the Daily Mail. But it was her spread, a two-page spread. And she talked about being really quite a successful student. At 17, she was doing really well at school. But in order to cope with what she was going through, the stresses of of studies, she took a little tipple or two. So she'd have a a can of lager a few times during the week. And it just helped to take the edge off all the stress and pressure from school. She got through her A-levels, did really well, and actually went to do medical studies. Again, remember, this is a national story. She went to a university to do medical studies, and she did well there, but the pressure was even higher. And she found herself drinking more. Sometimes she would get through a bottle of vodka overnight on occasions and she'd, in a stupor, go into lecture hall the next day and sit in a corner. And she was doing all right with her studies, but she needed alcohol in order to help her cope. But her funds were falling away. 
This is expensive, and she couldn't afford the fees, the living, and the drink. And so Emma's head went to, how can I earn money in order to fund my alcohol problem? So Emma said to her fellow students, would you like to buy me? And gave herself to them. And her fellow students couldn't afford very much. And eventually Emma found that she was really not making what she needed in order to fund her alcoholism. So Emma took a decision of going to, from her university town, she went to another town in the UK, about 50 miles from her university town. And there she decided to walk the streets. Remember, this was 2013, so not that long ago. And she walked the streets, and within an hour, she was picked up. A man picked her up, took her to a field. She made 50 pounds. And she describes this in her story, unprotected sex. She went back into town, and she did the same thing twice again that night, desperate to make money to fund her alcoholism. She went back to her university, and then she did this another few nights until finally she said, I just, I cannot do this anymore. She held her hands up, and she said to her parents, this is what's been happening. Parents who were devastated, but loved her. And what they, what they did for Emma was to find a rehabilitation center for women. And Emma went to the rehabilitation center. And her story is good. She went through rehab. She recovered. And actually, she has gone on to complete her medical studies. That's great, isn't it? The shocking thing for me is that the university that Emma went to was the University of East Anglia in Norwich. And the town whose streets she walked in 2013 were Ipswiches. Emma and others like her are why we're doing this. <clears throat> Along with the tens of thousands of other women around the country who have addictions. Not all will be in Emma's circumstances. Much addiction is hidden. There is so much within the professional world that some of you may have come across where alcohol is such a common factor in our lives. But I want to end by just saying that this morning, you have dived into the Bible story of Jairus. Along with, uh, along with me, you've seen God's timing and his quiet exhortation to not fear, but just believe. At TK, we've experienced just that too. Not to fear, but just believe. So what's your takeaway this morning? Do you fear or do you have peace with God? Do you doubt or do you choose to accept his control in your life? Let us pray. Lord, this morning we want to thank you for church here, for community here, for fellowship here. We want to thank you, Lord, that we can stand before you and acknowledge you as Lord, as King of Kings. But actually, we also want to say, Lord, that sometimes we're aware that we fear, that we don't trust you fully, that we don't completely give ourselves to you, that we find it difficult to stand face to face with you as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and to accept that exhortation of yours, don't be afraid, just believe. And sometimes, too, we want things to work out our way. TK's taken 12 years. We wanted it done within two. But, Lord, you had purpose in all of that. You have changed lives in that process. 
And we thank you for the provision of a center which is now going to impact on women's lives in a way which is extraordinary for them and a huge encouragement for us. So Lord, as we go from here today, I pray that you would help us to to give our fears to you and to give our trust to you because you are our Lord. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen.